Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Election 2018 is in full swing, and now is the time to figure out how you're going to vote. For this edition of our politics-focused series, Policy and a Pint, we're taking a look at Proposition 2, about letting California use revenue from the millionaire's tax on $2 billion in revenue bonds to house homeless people who need mental health services. Proposition 2 definitely has a lot of history to it. It is born from previous propositions passed, legislative actions passed afterwards, and a legal case to stop them that's still in court. Prop 2 is complicated, but it definitely is relevant, because it's addressing two of California's biggest problems, helping the homeless and building affordable housing for them. But is it set up in a way that will work? We're down in the basement at Roostaller's Tap Room in Sacramento to have a discussion with panelists who are giving us the straight talk on Proposition 2 and what it will mean if you vote yay or nay on it. So hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. We are a civic engagement organization here in Sacramento, the California capital, and we focus on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state. And these are cocktail conversations, or what this one is known as is policy in a pint, and we take tough, quote unquote, wonky topics like politics and policy, try to make them more relevant and relatable with a cocktail or a pint in your hand. So we are looking right now at the election and certain ballot initiatives that are on there for us to vote. Four of those 11 propositions that we'll be, we will be voting on are housing related. So that's 36% excuse me, of the ballot. So we've been looking at uh, Proposition 5, Proposition 10, Proposition 1, and for this hour, Proposition 2, which I will be honest was is quite a doozy. Uh, I try to read up on that. I try to get my head wrapped around it. There's a lot of history, a lot of backstory, a lot of explanation about why it's on the ballot for us to vote on. And it's a really interesting one too. So we're gonna have a discussion about why it's on the ballot, what it entails, what it means if it passes, what if it means if it doesn't pass. So you get a better sense of um, the history of this proposition, what it means, and how you'll vote on it or not. So uh, I wanted to give a few thanks to people who made this, uh, this podcast and this event uh, happen. First off, we're holding it in Roostaller Tap Room in downtown Sacramento. It just opened brand new. The owner is J.E. Pano, so I wanted to say thank you very much to him for letting this. Also, some people that helped put this event together and help me get panelists. Uh, Rachel Escau of Sacramento Housing Alliance. Deborah Anderla of the uh, Steinberg Institute. I hope I'm saying the name correctly. Uh, Douglas Dunn of the Contra Costa chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, thank you all uh, for uh, helping put the panel together. Uh, my volunteer, Nicole Grant Creek, who's also on the board of director, checked some people in, uh, helped me put a beer in front of me, and I wanna say thanks for her continued support. 
Of course, I want to thank the panelists who are here on either side of me for taking time out of a busy schedule to come and talk. And of course, last but not least to you, the audience, for coming out and listening to this and hopefully going to the mic with some great questions. This event is going to be a moderated Q&A first with me asking questions to the panelists, but then we're gonna open it up the other half to audience mic questions. Um, and then again, it's gonna be podcast recorded. So I do not introduce the panelists. I let them introduce themselves. I think it's always good to to know a little personal information about you to make you a little more relatable and not just you know pro or con person on, on the panel. So I'm going to ask, besides your name, obviously, and your current role in organization, a personal note since we're talking about housing, what your favorite house is in California, uh, your, your dream home. Is it the one you live in now? Is it the one that you grew up in? Is it when you were driving down uh, Highway 1 and you saw Hearst Castle, you're like, I'd love to live there. Do you have a house that you're like, I would love to retire there, it's a fixer-upper, just something like that, like your, your favorite house in California. So I'm going to start with the woman on my left, and then we'll go to the woman on my right. Hi everyone, my name is Maggie Merritt and I'm the executive director of the Steinberg Institute which was founded by our mayor, Daryl Steinberg, um, back in 2015. And our mission is to advance sound public policy and inspire leadership on the issues of brain health. Little feedback. Anyways, my favorite house, there's a few of them. One is the one that's on 21st and T, the Victorian. I just love that place. It's under construction right now. Getting, it's, being, it's being revamped. I also love the house I raised my sons in, uh, who are now grown men. And I always love going to my grandchildren's house because, well, for obvious reasons, they're just beautiful and fun. Um, but the house that I really love and what has um, motiva motivated our efforts here on Proposition 2 is the house that everyone gets to live in. And, um, you know, I remember I was raised by a minister and uh, he preached at a nearby church, 13th and N, Westminster Presbyterian Church. And after church, he would sometimes take me to the K Street Mall. This was back in the 60s. And he would sit down on a bench and he there were people living without a home there and he would ask me to go up to them and find out what they needed and um, I did we did that year after year after year and so ever since being a little girl I've always just thought that you know there were some basic rights there are some basic things and the core piece is to have a roof over your head and so that's the house I like the most, the one that's over all of our heads. Hi, I'm Marianne Bernard. Um, I have degrees from Stanford and the University of Chicago Law School, and I retired uh, after 30 years practice of law, mostly in other jurisdictions where, uh, among other things, I represented mental hospitals. And I successfully fought uh, for housing for the severely mentally ill uh, in another state. And I unsuccessfully fought for housing for the severely mentally ill in this state uh, due to uh, NIMBYism here, which is rampant and supported by state laws, whereas where I used to practice, NIMBYism was uh, forbidden by state laws. 
Uh, all of which explains why I am now in retirement advocating for the severely mentally ill. Uh, my favorite house is the one my late husband and I owned uh, in the Midwest, a big beautiful house which we could not possibly have afforded in California uh, if it existed in California, which it uh, does not. So uh, housing is a huge problem here for people at all income levels. So no, dr no dream home in California. I, I like the house I'm in now, but, uh, but you know, affordability is a huge issue here, uh, and it, it affects all income levels. Yes, we've talked about it uh, very thoroughly in the last three discussions about housing, and it, and it seems it's a common thread, uh, which I'm sure it's going to be a common thread uh, through this discussion. So... I think like I mentioned before, this, this proposition too has uh, some, a lot of history um, to it. There's a, other propositions involved. Uh, there's a lawsuit involved. Uh, there's some reasons why it's on the ballot for us to vote on. So I wanted to start with the backstory first and then get to the explanation of what Proposition 2 is so we better understand why it's on the ballot. So Maggie, I, I wanted to start with you about Proposition, Proposition 63, which was passed back in 2004, because uh, that's a very important part of this discussion. I wanted you to explain what that, what that was, you know, when, when we passed it, what that involved. And then going forward to, I guess, a couple of years ago, maybe one or two years ago, Kevin DeLeon um, proposed to use funding from Proposition 63. Governor Brown signed off on it. I'm going to let Marianne take over after that. But I wanted you to, to start the story from Proposition 63 up into, you know, getting to Governor Brown with funding from it. So um, Daryl Steinberg has been a champion for uh, the homeless and has been dedicated to improving the mental health system in California for decades. And actually, home, the issues around homelessness is what uh, inspired him to join forces with a good friend of his, Rusty Selix, in writing uh, Proposition 63. So, and, this, and what was his role then when he was doing Prop 63? Because he wasn't mayor of Sacramento now. He was what? So he uh, went into the assembly. It was, it was between being an assembly member and becoming a senator that he uh, authored Proposition 63. So what Proposition 63 is, this was back in 2004, um, is a 1% tax on personal income over a million dollars. And uh, to fund... Uh, public mental health services in California. I think the first year we brought in somewhere around $900 million and um, back in 2005 and now Proposition 63 is bringing in $2.2 billion a year. So um, so that's where it started out of a commitment to ensure that uh, we could uh, infuse funds into California for mental health care. 80% um, of those funds currently are focused on what we might call kind of stage three, stage four care. The uh, care for people who have already kind of 
maybe lived for quite some time without services and who have a serious mental illness. Approximately 20% of those funds are directed to prevention and early intervention and innovation. So that's how it's split. It's uh, distributed to all of our 58 counties based on a per capita rate. And uh, counties, besides the way that, that those funds are split up, the 80-20, they have a lot of flexibility as to how they will provide services in their county. Each county is very different. That flexibility is appropriate to a certain degree. So that's probably enough about Prop 63. So uh, when Daryl and I launched the Institute in January of 2015, we uh, actually took a good long look at what was happening currently with the Mental Health Services Act, which was what Prop 63 created. And um, in the fall of 2015, we really decided that something more needed to be done around homelessness and especially for people who are living on our streets uh, with a serious mental illness. Like they're the most vulnerable people among us. And so what we decided to do is to take uh, the then president uh, of the Senate, Kevin DeLeon, and other legislative leaders and key, f uh, key staff members on what we were calling reality tours. So we toured through Skid Row in Los Angeles. We toured through uh, the Tenderloin District in San Francisco. And we toured uh, here in Sacramento. And we showed these decision makers um, the problem you know, kind of what it looked like, sounded like, smelled like, what was happening with these people who were living under bridges and, you know, camping on streets in major cities. And then we also introduced them to people who were running permanent supportive housing units and providing housing with kind of what we call whatever it takes kind of care. Each individual has different needs. Each individual deserves to have those needs met. And so that happened over the course of a month or so, October, November of uh, 2015. And Kevin DeLeon became inspired, really just enraptured with the whole idea that there is something we can do and there is something we must do as just decent human beings to provide care for these people who are the most vulnerable. And so he agreed to author um, a piece of legislation at the time, AB 1618, and what that legislation uh, sought to do was to take a small percentage of that $2.2 billion to leverage uh, up to a $2 billion bond to create up to 20,000 permanent supportive housing units, again, permanent, so forever unit, uh, supportive, wraparound care, whatever you need kind of care across California. And so um, we received bipartisan support, um, and the governor uh, was in support of it all the way through. 
the process. And so it went through the legislative process and the governor signed it into law in 2016. So after that happened, um, after it was approved, signed into law, the uh, initiative went to the court for a validation process, which is a very common process that happens with bonds of this size. And at the same time, uh, Marianne filed uh, a suit, which led to uh, this two-year delay in getting the funds out to the counties. Which is why I, I have Marianne on the panel. Because I wanted, I thought it was interesting when I was reading up on this, you know, there's, I guess the lawsuit is a big reason, if not the main reason why Proposition 2 is on the ballot. So I, I wanted Marianne to explain, you know, filing a lawsuit against the legislature's proposal. And I think some of the, the, the evidence, for lack of a better word, your reasoning for it was a letter from the state attorney general's office. So I wanted to ask you, Marianne, why you decided to file? What was this reasoning that you used for opposing the efforts and, you know, uh, how this, how you got involved in this? Okay. Uh, let me, let me uh, correct and clarify a little of what I heard earlier. And, and uh, just briefly, because we have a yeah, lot to cover. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so we're very clear. Proposition 63 uh, is to benefit people with severe mental illness, a mental illness that is both a severe diagnosis and is disabling as defined in state law. Uh, and uh, the validation action, uh, the, the action that I brought is not what delayed the process. I brought my action within 60 days of the, of the uh, statute and it was the attorney general who delayed for over a year in bringing the validation action. So. Why did I bring the lawsuit? Uh, uh, let me say first, I am very proud to be the mother of Proposition 2, uh, which no matter what the outcome of the voters, uh, is how the democratic process should work and should have worked to begin with. I filed the lawsuit, uh, and, uh, and I want to add, I specifically gave up any claim to attorney's fees, so it is not about money, not for me. Uh, I filed it out of sheer moral outrage, both at what the legislature did, which was uh, blatantly unconstitutional in my view, uh, as well as bad public policy, and I might add blatantly unconstitutional in the view of the Attorney General Lockyer, uh, as set forth in the Attorney General opinion. It was also um, moral outrage at the manner in which this was done, which was undemocratic uh, and sneaky uh, in the extreme. Uh, basically, um, uh, no place like home was shoved very quickly through the legislature. All this is laid out in my briefs. Um, they bypassed the policy committees. Um, uh, it, it was only momentarily public. It was public for less than two weeks before it was enacted. This was all written behind closed doors. And people like me who advocate for the severely mentally ill had virtually no notice of what was going on. The uh, drafters admitted that they were aware of this attorney general opinion, which is the attachment to my complaint, uh, which, which says, in essence, that these issues are not for the legislature. They have to go to the voters on two separate grounds, one being the provision in California law that says uh, voter propositions can only be changed 
by the legislature if the voters so allow. That is not the case here. The other is, is, the, is, the, is the, what's called the debt ceiling. Certain bonds, like the bonds you are discussing, have to go to the voters. And the way that uh, No Place Like Home dealt with this constitutional issue, which the drafters were very aware of, was to put a 60-day statute of limitations into the No Place Like Home Act, which they hoped uh, would run before anybody figured out what was going on. But uh, fortunately, uh, I figured out on about the, the uh, 40th day uh, and, uh, but I, I wanted to ask though, Marianne, because I thought I got, from what I was reading in the articles about the lawsuit, the, one of the primary reasons was some of this funding was going to housing. And in, in, in your reasoning was this money should be fully a funding for services and housing was not part of the original and, and that is absolutely correct. There, there are no references to housing in the original Proposition 63 because, and one of the drafters is sitting here in the audience and I'm sure would be happy to confirm this, uh, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill would only sign on to Proposition 63 if every reference to housing was taken out because they specified the money should go for treatment. And uh, tre no, it is absolutely true and that is under oath in the lawsuit. And so housing was never part of the original bill, uh, which also had anti-borrowing, anti-bonding language in it that the legislature essentially tried to ignore. So um, I brought the lawsuit um, after considerable prayer and trying to channel uh, my late husband, who was a very distinguished professor of constitutional law, I decided I needed to do this because it was the only way that it was that that the, the objection to to what was happening and the manner in which it was done would be heard. Uh, I I later filed what's called a summary judgment motion, which is the lawyers signal that they feel they have a very strong case. And five days later, um, the first bill was introduced to do what the legislature knew, or at least the drafters knew they should have done to begin with, which was send the matter to the voters. Hence. Proposition, proposition two. 2. So, okay, so on that note, with Proposition 2, how it stands and how it reads, what would we be voting on? Um, what would the Proposition 2 be doing if it passed? Maggie. So, Proposition 2 simply gives the voters the opportunity to say um, that they agree that using four to six percent of Prop 63 funds for housing that's tied to services is an appropriate use for those dollars. That's what it does. And so I should mention that originally we were supposed to have four panelists on, um, on this on this stage. One of them, Douglas Dunn, who I refer to in my thanks, uh, is from the National Alliance on Mental Illness in the Costa Costa chapter. He couldn't make it because I guess a water line broke in his house and that's, that's obviously a big deal. <laughs> but also the reason why uh, he was on board was because his chapter wrote the official uh, no on Prop 2 um, 
you, you know how on the uh, Secretary of State, the, the general election pamphlet where most people go to get their, you know, why people are for or against, their chapter wrote the official, this is why we're against Prop 2. He couldn't make it, but I, I think I, I'm going to check with Marianne. I'm, ass, I'm assuming that um, NAMI and, and Contra Costa has a reasoning that you can, can kind of summarize for us why they're against Prop 2 the way that, that Maggie said it's, we're going to be voting on. Yeah, I, I conferred with them, and they gave me permission to do what I'm about to do, which is uh, read from and summarize what you all will get with your ballot materials, which is their opposition. Uh, and I encourage you to read that opposition very carefully. Uh, I also have with me, um, and I encourage you to read a, a, a very excellent editorial that they wrote in the San Diego... Uh, uh, What's it called? Union Tribune. Tribune. Union yeah, Tribune, yes. yeah. Uh, which uh, expounds a little further on uh, their reasoning, and uh, it is called. Um, I'm sorry. And it was written on August 30th, and the name of their of their article is uh, uh, first. A proposition to first invest in our people, and I recommend it to you. So uh, what they say uh, in their ballot opposition is, uh, please vote no on the No Place Like Home Act, which should have been called the Bureaucrat and Developer Enrichment Act, because that is who we feel will most benefit at the expense of those suffering with the most severe mental illnesses. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just portions of it. Um, particularly given, given looming federal cutbacks, Proposition 2 is, this is their first reason against it, counterproductive because it spends billions in treatment funds uh, on bonds. If passed, we strongly feel that Proposition 2 will cause more homelessness by forcing more mentally ill people with severe symptoms onto the streets. So that's reason number one that they oppose it. Reason number two is that it is costly, up to $5.6 billion uh, in interest and administrative expenses. Um, and they explain how they reached this. Uh, uh, no Place Like Home Proposition 2 skims off $140 million a year from treatment funds for the severely mentally ill um, in order to raise $2 billion in bond funds. That's right, you take 140 million and you multiply by 40 because 40 year bonds have been authorized and you come up with 5.6 billion. Now that is up to, it is not, that is the top range. It is not uh, the necessary range. Uh, but you have to subtract out the administrative expenses from the 2 billion in bond funds because not all of that's gonna be available, in fact, a hundred million dollars is going to housing bureaucrats, which is 5%, and is admittedly, and I have the documents from the lawsuit where this is laid out if anybody wants to see them, admittedly, housing bureaucrats took way more than they needed to fund the program. They just grabbed it. And uh, they've also agreed between themselves that they will take this 140 million yearly as administrative expenses, whether or not they actually needed to administer the program. It's astounding, but it's in writing, and I have it, and I'm happy to show it to anybody who would like to see it. There are also tremendous developer subsidies. Uh, the, the, 
opposition specifies the low interest deferred loans. Low interest is 3% simple interest. The deferred loans are they get 15 years, developers get 15 years where they only have to pay 42 hundredths of 1% on the loans they get and they can get up to a $20 million loan which means they could they could bankroll 15 million and make a bundle on it with a low interest loan like that. Um, plus they get, if they apply, and they do have to apply, and there are some qualifications, but they get 50% operating subsidies. So it's a tremendous gift to developers. So that's the second reason, it's very costly. And then the, the third reason that, that the opponents oppose Prop 2 is it is unnecessary. Because the legislature, I'm quoting here, authorized counties to pay for housing for their severely mentally ill Proposition 363 clients in 2017 in AB 727. And I have a copy of that bill if anyone wants to see it. Uh, counties do not need to pay out billions in interest on bonds, unnecessary state administrative expenses, and developer subsidies in order to fund housing. They now have the power to do so, and as we all know from reading the newspapers, the counties are sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars in unspent MHSA funds, which they now, for the first time, have authority to use as housing. And as they state here, counties know their mentally ill clients' treatment needs and other needs, as well as what housing is already available and what is needed and where it can be built. And only they can determine whether their MHSA funds are best used to pay for treatment or to build housing in their localities. Yeah, um, so yes, a lot, a lot of stuff. And um, so yeah, I know there's gonna be a discussion going back and forth. I do wanna clarify one thing though, and I, I'm gonna, uh, I think, Probably you both know the answer, but I'm going to check with you because you had referred originally to you know what we're calling the millionaires tax for Prop 63, and Marianne is referring to for this bonds would being used. So we did talk about bonds. I keep hearing about the millionaires tax. Where what's the funding for Proposition Two? Where the money would be coming from? Is it bonds? Is it a millionaires tax? Is it a combination of both? Just so we can understand where the money is being generated from. Do you want to start, Maggie? First, I would like to just clarify in terms of um, the National Association of Mental Illness's support or opposition. She represents one county of 58, but the um, state NAMI Association is in full support of Proposition 2. So we just need to keep that in mind. Um, I did not know that because they came out against the initial bill, so that I am surprised by that. I mean, the initial Prop 63 in support endorsing the initiative, and NAMI did not come in opposition to No Place Like Home. I worked on that every day in 2015. No, I, I meant 1806, you. the initial version of Proposition 2, they came out against, but I guess they changed their minds. Okay. So we clarified okay. that. So NAMI California is in support of Prop 2. I'll just let you know. And they represent um, the caretakers, parents, the consumers, their, um, the families. So they're all for this. And um, I'm sorry, tell me your question again. Oh, yes. So it's just where the, the money to pay for the services is generated from because uh, millionaires tax is referred to, a bonds was just referred to. So just so we all understand where the money going forward at Prop 2 passes comes from. 
So the money comes from the Prop 63 Mental Health Services Act. So it, we take up to 6%, depending on how much is bonded, uh, of MHSA off the top to leverage a bond, the bonds, right? The bonds will not be leveraged all at once at the $2 billion mark. The state could not handle that kind of saturation. So it'll go incrementally. There will never be bonds that go beyond what the counties are prepared to utilize. So a county needs to go through a whole big process, right? They have to create a plan. They work in partnership with their, um, their builders and, and a whole team of people um, involved in permanent and supportive housing. And then they submit their application to the Housing and Community Development Department. And once that application is approved, they receive the funds that they say they need for a plan that's already approved, planned, and ready to go. So the bonds are paid for by a very small percentage of MHSA dollars. That's how it works. Marianne, did you want to? Uh, I think I'm in agreement, but, but the amount is 7%, and uh, it's capped at $140 million per year, which the, the bureaucrats are going to take. They've already agreed whether they need it or not. Um, and, uh, and what happens is it pays the interest. The, the bondholders have been promised this money to pay the interest on the bonds. The interest on the bonds plus the administrative expenses um, uh, will equal up to $5.6 billion. It's like taking a mortgage out on a house. You always end up paying more in interest than, than, uh, than, than the principal. So the, the expenses of a $2 billion bond uh, greatly exceed $2 billion. And that is what will happen here. And that is money that is been being taken directly from treatment funds for severely mentally ill people. So the bonds are being paid for off the backs of the severely mentally ill. So I have a question for you about that because obviously um, to me it seems like there's a, a chicken or the egg question coming here. What comes first? Housing for homeless, um, health services and treatment first because it, it seems like you know money's being taken away. You're saying uh, from the services for housing, but then others are saying, well, housing seems like a very integral part. So the way Prop 2 is written now, do you like how it... Do you, what do you feel about it applying to housing and services? Should there be an order? Should it go uh, together? I mean, is it written now, Prop 2, in a way where that makes sense to, to apply both? What's your point of view on that? Well, I mean, Prop 63 was a treatment, uh, really a treatment-only bill. It, it was not about housing. Housing had been, had been eliminated and thrown out of it. Um, the premise was uh, that uh, if you got severely mentally ill people treated, homelessness would tend to solve itself. They would either be able to go home to their, um, to their families of origin, where most of them actually are housed, or they would be able to find their own housing. Uh, the concept of housing first came up later. It, it's not something that even existed when Proposition uh, 63 was passed. And, and the converse of that is that if people are untreated, 
Severely, severely mentally ill people when untreated and you house them without proper supports, and, and I agree that the supports are very important, you simply move the problem indoors and probably temporarily because uh, they tend to act out, they get evicted, uh, they wander off, uh, they illegally sublet uh, you know, for, for uh, a small sum and then go back into homelessness. Um, I can tell you that the parents of severely mentally ill people, and I, I am in contact with a lot of them, um, who have had kids in so-called supportive housing, um, many report very bad experiences with it, essentially because often the, the supports are not adequate with people who have a severe illness. The, basically, the sicker people are, the, the more support they need, and you can't simply toss them into an apartment and say, you know, you'll be fine, call your social worker when you need help. So, um, no, I, I mean, if you're asking me how I feel about it personally, I think uh, it's a, a waste of public money and a travesty. But uh, in legal terms, um, Proposition 63 was never a housing first bill. So I'm gonna open up the mic to questions. It is right there if you wanna start lining up. And while you start lining up, I, I have a question for you, uh, Maggie. Uh, you know, reading the voters pamphlet, I read, you know, quote, yes on two will help establish and strengthen partnerships between doctors, law enforcement, mental health and homeless service providers to help ensure care is coordinated and tailored to meet the needs of each person suffering from mental health illness and homelessness. So I guess the, the uh, complete or I don't know, I'm sure there's a term, but that overall, all the parts are included. So if you can give us, I guess, a hypothetical or maybe real life example of how that partnership would work for, for one individual, what the expected outcome would be if Prop 2 passes. So give us a hypothetical, you know, start to ideal finish or outcome. I'm happy to do that, and before I go there, I just want to say that there are multiple studies out there that prove that show that health issues worsen when you don't have a roof over your head, and it's not hard to imagine. I mean, just how about we all go be live, you know, homeless for a week or a month or a year? And even without an illness, you need to tell me how you're gonna be feeling at that time, you know, after spending some time on the streets. Now let's throw an illness in there. Let's throw diabetes in there. Let's throw cancer in there. Or let's throw a serious mental illness in there. And I can guarantee you, you are not going to be able to access the kind of constant care and support you would need to, to heal. Right? So we have studies that also show studies around permanent supportive housing. And we need to remember that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about putting someone with a serious mental illness in an apartment and just dropping them there. You want to go see one. There's one on H and 7th Street, Mercy Housing. And um, it has a clinic right on the first floor with mental health professionals. It's beautiful facility, and so it's about um, making sure that people first have their first need met. We need to have a stable housing. And then what happens is not only am I able to kind of let go of the fear of living on the streets and, you know, the stress that comes with not having somewhere to pee, but I also now am directly... Um, able to be 
accessed by my mental health care professionals. They will know where I am. Because you know what happens in the county? County, good county workers spend a lot of time with, and I'm getting to that part, with um, kind of looking for you. If you don't have a house, then you're not gonna be sitting on the same corner every day for your mental health professional to find you or your physician to find you. So one example of what would happen once Proposition 2 is approved by the voters is that and this is just one example, there's a lot of different ways, but one that we love a lot is assertive outreach teams. Those teams include a mental health professional, a physician, perhaps somebody from the public safety arena who go out under the bridges, onto our streets, and over time develop strong relationships with people who are living on the street with a serious mental illness. It's not like you can just walk out there and go, hey, Frank, come with me. I've got a pad for you and some care. You, it takes a lot of time to develop that trust and safety that they need because they're vulnerable. These are our brothers, our sisters. I had an uncle living on the street. I mean. These are real people in our families. We all know somebody who is living with a mental health issue, and these people we're talking about are people who have fallen through the cracks and have lived for a long time without the right kind of care, and now they're living on K Street. So once that trust is developed, then they are brought into housing, where they get to choose around what kind of care they would like. And studies show that people who are in permanent supportive housing units, it's like over 80% of them do find recovery, do get clean and sober, do start working with their mental health professional, etc. I mean, it's proven. It's not like my funny idea. I'm not that smart. But there's a lot of research out there that shows. And again, it's just common sense. I'm going to get better if I have a roof over my head. So we have a lot of people lined up at the mic. So let's start with the audience questions first. Let's take the, the first question. Hi, I am the mother of a child with a severe mental illness. She's a former foster child. And when she was 18, because of her mental illness, um, she, she did run away. And she was looking for housing that would be supportive because she couldn't live at home because of her mental illness. And, I tried to help her find something and it just opened my eyes to the lack of housing for uh, um, um, supportive housing and any kind of shelter for uh, runaway children. That there's one in Sacramento and it doesn't, it isn't for children with mental illness, for young people with mental illness. Um, it doesn't have specialized services and I, I was just appalled. And I'm looking to prop to to provide that kind of housing for both young people and adults that will um, provide those kind of services and a roof over their heads where they can get stable medical care and sorry um, medical care and counseling. Um, and I'm assuming it's for young people too. Is that true? She was over 18 and she ran away. Yeah. Yes, that is true, and actually for children, too, who live with the children and their family, if they, a child has a serious emotional, um, what's the term, emotional disturbance, disturbance thank you, um, 
So housing could also be for that child and their family if they're homeless. Miriam, I, I just I uh, I don't disagree with what I just heard from Maggie. First of all, um, I do want to note though that uh, one of the real problems with the No Place Like Home Act is that it says almost nothing about the services that uh, should be given to the severely mentally ill. There's there's virtually there are no standards in it. There's nothing in it, for example, about uh, assertive outreach teams. And, and it's been left to the housing department, which has been given tremendous discretion, to decide uh, on uh, all these projects. And they know nothing about severely mentally ill people. And they, I read three, 5,000 pages of their email, and I am here to tell you they, uh, they are not curious about it. And fundamentally, I don't think they care. So, uh, you know, you will get whatever the housing department decides to, to approve. You're talking about the state housing department, not yeah. county or... I'm talking about the state housing department. Okay, Maggie, if you want to respond Just to really that. quickly. Permanent supportive housing is an evidence-based model of care that standards, you know, are part of. And so it's very much lined out in law. I mean, it's very, very clear in law what permanent supportive housing is. We're not, and period. That's just what she said was completely inaccurate. So let's take the next audience question. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm coming at this from a, a couple of perspectives, primarily as a, a former affordable housing developer who has developed supportive housing for those who are disabled, whether it's mental illness, developmental disabilities, or physical disabilities. And one of the great challenges that we have is truly making affordable housing that um, those who are disabled can af afford, especially those who have been experiencing homelessness. Prop 63 was a tremendous asset for us because one, it could help subsidize the rent, helped to reduce the portion of the rent that the tenants with uh, mental illness uh, were responsible for. And it also helped to pay for those on-site supportive services. One of the reasons that I believe that the counties are sitting on large pots of unutilized Prop 63 money is that there hasn't been enough housing developed to house these needy people that we everybody here is in agreement uh, need stable housing for them to have any chance of stabilizing their lives. And so Prop 2 is going to provide that missing piece for affordable developers in those counties so that they can build the housing and use the original Prop 63 dollars to provide the necessary supportive services for those residents. I also just want to comment, because I was also a lender. I worked for Bank of America on their affordable housing uh, development side for several years. And 
you know, what, what Prop 2 is going to do is what every bank, you know, every mortgage lender does. Um, it's leveraging dollars. And for affordable housing developers, the Prop 2 dollars will be one of the pieces of funding that they will be utilizing to build this housing. The overall number of housing units for the mentally ill that will be provided through Prop 2 is far greater than what we would see today with just Prop 63 as it is currently being utilized. So I hope that you, in, in addressing the legal issue about whether or not Prop 63 permitted dollars to be used as capital for development, since you're committed to caring for the mentally ill, I would hope that you can see a way to be supportive of Prop 2. Uh, and, and it's, its goals. So I think it's consistent with what you've expressed as your values. Marianne, do you want to respond to that? Well, uh, developers um, have uh, tossed in um, hundreds of thousands of dollars to a pot uh, that is going to soon uh, come up with advertising that will tell you what a great thing Proposition 2 is because they uh, really want to chow down on these, uh, uh, these uh, subsidies that they're going to get. Um, and, uh, but for myself, I think what was already in place as of 2017 is more than sufficient. For the first time, counties have been given authority under, explicit authority under uh, the Mental Health Services Act to build housing and also uh, pay rent subsidies. That's only as of 2017, and nobody has given them a chance to do that. It is far better, in my opinion, to let the local authorities who know the needs of their clients, who actually know something about severe mental illness, which the state housing department does not and never will, uh, who know where, th where it's feasible to build housing, to use Proposition 63 money and to deal with the hard issue of uh, what do you do? You have treatment needs and you have housing needs and how do you balance those things? Uh, Prop 63 is a local uh, focused initiative and uh, I, I for one am, am not going to uh, support something that is so expensive when the expense is so unnecessary and so much of the money is being wasted. So you're saying the money's already there. Prop 2 just takes money that could be used for something else when it's already sitting. Prop 2 is pissing money out the window. Uh, and it's not necessary because the money is already there. Counties don't need to borrow. They don't need to pay billions of dollars in expenses, bond expenses and administrative expenses in order to pay for housing. Maggie. I'll just make one point. There's so many points I can make there. But um, we have 134,000 people living on the streets in California right now. One third of those people are living on the street with a serious mental illness. It's true. Counties can utilize their Prop 63 funds for housing. But... The small, they need an infusion of funds 
for us to even begin to make a dent toward providing the humanitarian care that these people need. I, and before we go to the next audience question, I had a quick one actually, because in the, the discussion we did on Proposition 1, just before this one, NIMBYism uh, came up, and the, the, that stands for not in my backyard. And I was wondering if NIMBYism is an issue in terms of building housing for the homeless. I think I've read a few articles in the Sacramento Bee this past year about you know uh, some neighborhoods in Sacramento uh, voicing their opinion about having um, a permanent uh, housing for homeless built in there, and it's an issue that the, the city and the council is dealing with. I was wondering if Proposition 2 addresses that anyway. Is that going to be an issue, whether or not it passes, about having to um, deal with NIMBYs, about this housing is um, you know, necessary, but you're going to get pushback from residents. So is that addressed, Maggie? Well, NIMBYism is obviously an issue. There's been polls um, that have been done, and when good voters like us are asked if we prioritize homelessness, if we think that's a really important issue, across the board we say yes. And the bad news is that when those same good voters are asked, would you be comfortable with a housing facility in your neighborhood, we cower. So, um, I think Prop 2 does begin to address this, as does Prop 1, just because we're beginning to talk more about the need for housing. Prop 2 begins to ta um, talk about stigma, you know, and, you know, if I had my way, I would make stig stigma illegal. But I can't do that, right? So, what we can do as we're discussing initiatives like this, is we can begin talking about our friends and family or ourselves who are living with a mental health issue. We can begin looking at these people on the streets like members of a family or who, you know, and we can begin to bring the humanness back to the people who are struggling on the streets and start checking ourselves when we really do think about these people and under, we understand that these people are actually not the people committing crimes like so much of the, you know, kind of Fox News media says. They are much more frequently the victim of crime. So we really need to just begin, just like we have in other issues, like we did with cancer back several decades ago, or AIDS, or you know any kind of issue that has kind of pushed us to a new place. We have all, as good human beings, needed to begin letting down our own prejudices, our own fears, and start finding out, getting the facts, and start welcoming people into our communities, just as we have with so many other populations of people. Marianne. Uh, one of the uh, senseless things about Proposition 2, and as pointed out by the, the ballot opponents, and I'm gonna quote from their opposition, 
Proposition 2 does nothing to address systemic legal barriers like limited state protection against restrictive local zoning that make it very difficult to build supportive housing for groups like the severely mentally ill. In other words, NIMBYism. No, Proposition 2 does nothing about NIMBYism, which really should have been addressed first. Uh, they go on to say, it is senseless to pay out billions in interests and expenses to borrow money that may be unspent because of local opposition to supportive housing projects with severely mentally ill tenants. I will add that I have fought the good fight for housing twice in my career. The first time was in another state and we had good state laws that fought against NIMBYism and we won that battle. What state was that? That was Minnesota and it's a reported decision. I am happy to, it, it, it was uh, Northwest Residence versus City of Brooklyn Center and my name is in the head notes. I, uh, I fought it again here in California, however, and that's a, a longer story. Um, we fought the battle, and th that uh, facility, which actually is in Contra Costa County, is still empty. It was donated by a family for the purpose of setting up a housing for a group of severely mentally ill people, and the NIMBYs fought it to death because state law here sucks. And it really should have been addressed before we started spending billions of dollars in interest and administrative expenses on housing that may not be built because of NIMBYism. All right, so let's take the next question at the mic. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, my name is Rose King. I wanted to ask, um, since we know, we know now that um, the bonds, these bonds, which is a $5.6 billion cost at most estimates, um, are not necessary because counties can invest Prop 63 funds in housing development and subsidies, rent subsidies. They can take the initiative and do that. And the state legislature um, could put together a plan um, to, you know, perhaps save some money instead of, instead of handing out money to developers and to um, uh, investors in bonds. Um, what is the rationale for this No Place Like Home program, uh, which uh, also I would like to know if anyone can find um, a provision in there that requires that services come along with housing because the No Place Like Home legislation and the um, initiative do not provide for that. They reference it a great deal and how important that is and I know from personal experience that it's important because my grandson um, has gone through the process of being given a home and um, no services. And um, you know, it's a disaster. People are exploited and so it's quite common. Um, so what is the point of the bonds if not simply for you know, profiteering for developers and investors and when it's totally unnecessary? Why isn't there some leadership you know, to help counties develop housing when that is the case. And where in the law can anyone cite the need for um, that? Man it does not mandate services in this housing. And, and when you have people with a severe, severe mental illness who may be suffering, you know, hallucinations, who, uh, you know, voices, etc., um, to live alone is, uh, you know, a disaster. So there's nothing in there about um, um, requiring any kind of services. 
So mandating housing uh, with services in Prop 2, if that's covered, yeah, she says no. Maggie, what, what's what, your reply? There's no provision in the law that mandates that. Well, first of all, I'm can, so sorry to find. hear about your experience with your grandson. I mean, I, um, that's incredibly sad, and um, that's horrible. And as I said earlier, I'm sorry, as I said earlier, no place like home is an evidence-based program that is outlined. So, I mean, no place like home. Permanent and supportive housing is an evidence-based program. Counties have to commit in order to even qualify for any of these funds, they have to commit to 20 years of services, providing services for 20 years for every permanent supportive housing unit that they apply for. So there is a long-term commitment to services and by infusing funds into each county for the brick and mortar, counties now have access to their full coffer to provide those services that they're committed and required to provide for a minimum of 20 years. And the individual is required to go find those services. There is nothing in the law that, that requires the state or the county to see to it that that person has access to those services, has transportation, has encouragement, has on-site um, you know, encouragement. So, so yeah, let's let's have Maggie. Uh, so yeah, that would be uh, that would be um, most reassuring if it was that. And I, I'm familiar with the um, permanent supportive housing provision because that's a federal um, code section that um, also extends um, the the um, housing um, to people who uh, who have any kind of disadvantage. You know, not not just people with severe mental illness. It's encouraging that the um, Prop Two does does say people with severe mental illness, but it does not um, insist upon or mandate um, services. So, Maggie, I want you to briefly reply to that about the the mandating, and then we have to move on to the next audience question. We're running out of time, unfortunately, as we always do. So this is, a, so permanent and supportive housing is, first of all, low barrier housing. There are no requirements for, you know, other, there's other kinds of housing that would require you need to be drug and alcohol free, you need to be this or that. Low barrier housing has been proven to be the most effective, so it's the best way to get somebody into a stable home. And then, you're right. Services are not put upon you. Um, once you kind of stabilize, you can then choose. Yes, I want to go to that group uh, therapy session. Yes, I want to go to the clinic on the first floor to meet with a mental health professional. And studies have shown that over 80% of people who get into permanent supportive low barrier housing do choose to participate in whatever kind of therapy and support programs that they need. All right, next audience question. Hi, I'm a therapist here in Sacramento, and so I wanted to 
um, let you know that I work with people with severe mental illness and I've worked in um, the county system as well as nonprofits and have worked with people that are in supportive housing programs as well as people that aren't. Um, and my experience in working with people with severe mental illness is that um, very much I want them to be housed. I'm all for homeless people being housed. That's, you know, um, it hurts my heart when I walked on the way here and saw the homeless people. Um, but my experience both professionally and personally is I have several family members with schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, two of which are homeless, one is which has been in supportive, well both of them have been in supportive housing programs, one is still currently homeless in his supportive housing program and has been homeless since February and um, is, is not found a home because he has delusions, hallucinations, he has mood swings. So when somebody is that severely mentally ill, even when he did have housing, he, he doesn't have, he's 33, he doesn't have independent living skills. There is no mandated person that comes and teaches him how to do a budget, how to go grocery shopping, how to make food, how to pay his bills. He was put in, a, in an apartment with a man twice his age who was a registered sex offender. Um, and, um, and somebody came by once a month. That was his supportive housing program that's evidence-based. I'm a psychotherapist. I used evidence-based programs and my experience working as a therapist and having family members in it is very frustrating. I, I work tirelessly advocating to find housing and to look for services and to try to provide the services for people, but when people are um, severely mentally ill, they don't have the capacity to go find that group, to go down to the clinic. One, they don't have transportation. Two, they, they may be preoccupied by delusions or voices or being, you know, food deprived. So having somebody have the, the will, the fortitude, and the, the resources, internal resources to say, hey, I'm going to go to a group for somebody that's severely mentally ill, it's not, it's not viable. So I want to know, back to, <laughs> to my question, I want to know is with Proposition 2 and saying that it's evidence-based supportive housing in there is what is the detail what are the details of what's included? If it just says evidence-supported, you know, housing, then then I know professionally and personally that that's BS. And it's not just in Sacramento County, it's in multiple counties, because I also worked in Yolo County and Bay Area counties, and I have friends in Southern California. So, so, so I want to know exactly, does it does it have a therapist where they actually get to see a, a counselor, a therapist on a weekly basis? Does it have a caseworker? Is there somebody in the home every day? Is there somebody helping them take their medication? Is there somebody um, transporting them to groups? Is there somebody in there saying, you need to go to this group, you need substance abuse 
services or is it just here's the housing here's the the paperwork here go find these services you're good because that's my experience as a professional and those people can't get those services so are the specific details outlined does it just who decides those is on a city county level state level maggie can you address that well, first of all, thank you for your question, and I'm so sorry for your your experience. Um, God, that's just incredibly painful, and I know so many of us have lived through other painful experiences when it comes to our uh, family members who live with a mental health issue, so um, my heart goes out to you there. So again, permanent supportive housing it is all outlined in the No Place Like Home initiative and in statute. So, and I can get that information to you. I'll give you my card. I'll send you the language. So, but also the thing that struck me as well is that just like with any other health issue, you know, we have it's a wide range of you know how we're all functioning you can go from mild to moderate to severe whatever so the permanent supportive housing program doesn't it's not a one-size-fit-all program it's and there's a subset of people as you well know as a professional that it wouldn't qualify to be in a permanent support they need more 24 7 care like more intensive services so there's that so what happens to them with prop 2 it, it doesn't address that they would not so they don't address the the seriously mentally ill that there's are on the streets that, right there's a small set because no. my clients I'm not just talking about my nephew I'm talking about my clients I'm not either right are on the street so prop 2 doesn't yeah. address housing persistently severely mentally ill people yes it, it's for people who are chronically homeless or is it mild to moderate or no it's for I'll, I'll explain it if you let me answer the question Sorry. yeah, just, yeah it's we okay. kind, it's kind of have to do it briefly because we're, we're okay. really bringing over to podcast over time it's for people who are homeless or at great risk of becoming homeless who live with a serious mental illness even that term there's a broad range. So there are yes. people who live, I know people who have a serious mental illness who are CEOs of an organization, yes. right? I also know people who have a serious mental illness that need 24 seven care, wide range. So not all people are capable, sadly, to live in an apartment like a permanent supportive housing unit. But tens of thousands of people are. And that's what No Place Like Home is targeting. Tens of thousands of people will be served by Proposition 2. What happens to the rest of the people? That's another piece we are also looking at. We did a lot of work so on So that $2 billion doesn't address this, the persistently, seriously ill. Yeah, it's not a golden arrow to solve all issues around mental health, but it is a significant piece 
a huge population and there is more work to do and so actually I'd love to hear from you and see how we might work together on improving the lives of people who are more gravely disabled treatment and treatment yeah and I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna wrap that question up I do want to mention I don't know if we mentioned before that I believe Maggie and Marianne have handouts uh, that they are going to put on the table here so you take home and read up because obviously there is a lot to read up on I wanted to end it with one last question for, for both of you. In terms of Prop 2 passing, what do you see happening? If it doesn't pass, what will happen? So I'm going to give Maggie first. If Prop 2 passes, well, I mean, let me put it this way. Why don't we flip it? You have explained the benefits of Prop 2, why you want it to pass. If it doesn't pass, what's going to happen? Well, those tens of thousands of people that would receive a permanent place to live with wraparound care will be again put to the side and that care will be delayed until we go back at it again. I've been in the public policy industry since 1989. I'll do it another 10 or 20 years if I have to. But what it means is we go back at it because again, we all know someone and, and Again, these are our uncles and our fathers and our, you know, kids on the street. So if it doesn't pass, then we'll get back to it again. Marianne, last word. Prop 2 passes. What are you predicting or what do you see happening? Well, first I want to I correct something Maggie said. Um, it is very clear in Prop 2. Less clear in No Place Like Home, but that it addresses not serious mental illness, but severe mental illness as statutorily defined. And it is not correct to say that CEOs have severe mental illness because severe mental illness is disabling by statute. His name it is, is defined Staglin. in 5600.3 of the Welfare and Institution Code. And severe mental illness is both severe and disabling. So if Prop 2 passes, it is going to try to help people who are severely mentally ill, meaning they are not only have a serious diagnosis, but they are also severely disabled. And um, some money uh, will probably build housing for those people, and some of it will be good, and some of it will be terrible, because we have left uh, the housing department in charge of things, and they don't know and don't care about severe mental illness. Um, a lot of money will be wasted. Billions of dollars will be wasted paying interest that it is not necessary to pay because there is already money in hand to pay for housing. Billions of dollars will be wasted essentially running the housing department because they snatched uh, 60 or 70 billion million that they didn't need uh, as a part of the negotiating process that went on behind closed doors. Um, so a lot of money will be wasted some housing will be built, some of it will be good, some of it won't be. If it doesn't pass, uh, the counties already have the power to do what needs to be done without uh, paying billions of dollars in interest, without paying hundreds of millions of dollars in administrative expenses, and leaving in the hands of the, of the entities that A, understand severe mental illness because they work with it every day, and B, have the problem, which, which uh, the Steinberg Institute doesn't seem to be willing to acknowledge, and that is 
that you are stealing from the severely mentally ill to build housing for the severely mentally ill. You are taking away their treatment funds and all of the, the federal money that goes with that because the counties are all going to lose 7% of their budget to no place like home. It's being snatched off the top at the state level. And that means that they're going to lose money that goes into FSPs, uh, full service partnerships, and the federal money that they get on the side to pay for housing. So uh, it really should be up to the counties to wrestle with that dilemma. What should come first? I I'm not opposed to housing. I think housing is important. But I think that the people in the trenches who are the county mental health people should be the people to wrestle with the issue, where do we put these funds? Do we put them into treatment first? Do we put them into housing first? Do we balance and try to do both? Uh, it, it, taking it off the top at the state level and, and, and doing it in a way that wastes all this money is not sensible. But see if it doesn't pass, that the lawsuit will go on, probably regardless. Your lawsuit. But my lawsuit, yes. But, um, but bottom line, the counties already have the power to do what needs to be done. And they've only had it for a year. So let's give them a chance to do their job. So obviously, homeless housing, two very passionate issues, the Prop 2 addresses. It is a very tangled web, a lot of issues. And again, I know you both have handouts that I know I'm definitely going to take to read up on this. Very briefly, Maggie wants to say something, but we definitely have to wrap it up. We're all over podcast time. We have to edit this one, but very briefly, Maggie. Final word. Final word in one sentence. From our perspective, housing is services. If you, no, if you were homeless and you were put into housing, that would be a great service to you. And then you're in that unit where you have access to all the care you need. So I- One more sentence. Okay. Well, I just think that if it was, um, I just think it's a humanitarian thing to do. The funds go back to the counties. Counties maintain control. They're the ones who create the program, submit the application, and provide the services that go into the permanent supportive housing. So. And I want to say thank you, Marianne. Thank you, Maggie, for coming to talk about this very, very, very <laughs> intricate uh, discussion and uh, uh, for clarifying some issues. So I want to say thank you very much for coming to talk. Thank you all for coming to listen. And we'll put the podcast up uh, in a few days. So thank you. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's policy and a pint conversation was held on September 12th 2018 at Roostallers in downtown Sacramento. Many thanks to our panelists, Mary Ann Bernard and Maggie Merritt for joining us. Thanks to J.E. Pano, owner of Roostaller Beer, and his staff for hosting this event. Thanks also to Nicole Grant Krieg, one of California Groundbreakers board directors, for volunteering her help. And a special thanks goes to Noor Kasur from Housing California, Deborah Anderloo of the Steinberg Institute, and Douglas Dunn from the Contra Costa chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness for helping us put this event together. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.